Good morning, my name's Afton. This morning our scripture reading is from the Gospel of John. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 9 through 14 from chapter 1 in the New International Version. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. I'd like to begin this morning by just leading us uh, in another prayer. To the sovereign God that we have sung about this morning, to the one who not only created this world and everything in it, but to the one who sustains this world, we turn our thoughts and our prayers to you as we think about the anxiety that is all over our globe about a particular virus. Jesus, we bring our own concerns to you, our own anxieties to you. And we say to you, you are sovereign over all you've created. And yet we are concerned. And we bring to you the world leaders who are making decisions even right now about their own countries in response to this. We pray for medical professionals and scientists who are working on a cure for this, to hold it at bay. We pray for all who work in clinics and hospitals and are serving those who are already affected by the virus. We pray your healing touch upon them. Would you stem the effects of this? And would you protect this world from the effects of this any further? We trust you, Lord. We say to you again, our hope is in you. And we do pray, finally, that if there are those who this anxious moment in our history has created a sense of their own mortality, then God, I pray that the gospel would find a way into their hearts and their minds as a result of realizing that they are not in control of their own destiny. We offer you all these prayers. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. This morning, we're launching into a new uh, series for Lent, and really came out of a heart to uh, continue a theme that I was first taught when I was a young leader, and it was through a ministry called Young Life, put up the picture there. Here's a more modern-looking Young Life gathering. If you don't know, it's an outreach to mainly to students outside the church, uh, junior high and high school, and uh, now there's ministry for disabled and, and special needs uh, young adults. But uh, I love to tell the story, and my friends are here today, Scott and Beth uh, Campbell, uh, we are classmates together, and during our time at Bellevue High School in the early 70s, 
uh, Young Life was a very important ministry and had a profound effect on a lot of our classmates. And in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, Beth and Scott ended up finding Evergreen Covenant because there was quite a connection of Young Life folk to this church. Go to the next slide if you would. Uh, my parents, I learned, uh, were on Young Life Committee with Mary Dawson, who's a part of this church. She told me that when I first came here a few months ago. And my folks went up to Camp Malibu in Canada and were a part of building the original swimming pool. If you don't know, it's built out of rock. And so uh, this is before, I think, OSHA had any regulations in Canada because they basically would just pound dynamite into the rock. They'd all go hide behind another rock, blow it up. And my parents told me this story, and then they would walk in there and toss the rocks out. Then they would go around and do it again until they finally had a swimming pool. That pool still exists. Um, but I had the opportunity to go to Malibu. They used to do a leadership training event. And it was for, not just for Young Life leaders, but it was for those who just wanted to have a better understanding of how to share the gospel. So I went up as a 21-year-old, and there was a lesson that I learned that has impacted my whole life as a pastor. And it was this. In a Young Life club, there is something called the club talk. It's not a sermon. It's a, just a 10-minute, get to the point. You got teenagers, short attention span give it to them in the best way possible. And we were taught as young leaders to always utilize stories of Jesus for the club talk. There's plenty of good things in the rest of scripture. Don't use Old Testament stories. Don't go to the epistles, the, the writings of the apostles. Stick with the four gospels and in particular, focus on encounters with Jesus. And that impacted my life as a high schooler, as I remember both older and younger leaders standing up and just telling these encounters that people had with Jesus. And so that is our overall uh, series. But there's also a problem that I discovered with that, trying to focus on Jesus, because if you have studied the Gospels at all, you know that there are times when Jesus is a bit confusing. He has a lot of different facets to his character. Who is he? If you put these up. There are times, and we love this Jesus, when he's deeply caring. And I imagine him looking into the eyes of people and they just were enveloped by his compassion and his care. We have the accounts of healings how he treated the marginalized, and the fact that he went outside the bounds of normal religious leaders and he sought out people on the fringe. But he was also harsh and prophetic. We don't necessarily like that. He was harsh towards religious leaders. He was harsh towards political leaders. He was harsh towards hypocrites. And he had some hard things to say to them. So what do we do with that, Jesus? But then he was wise and he was loving. We love that Jesus. He said very wise things in his teaching. He taught large crowds. He taught smaller groups. He taught his 12 as he drew them in. And he had individual conversations where the wisdom and love of Jesus was just exhibited. But then he was also confusing because after some of his healings, he would say, don't tell anybody. And then he would give these cryptic 
predictions that he himself was going to die someday. And it stirred up the concern of his own followers. Why in the world would you do that? So the Gospels are these snapshots, but they're not chronological. We don't, we don't get a history of Jesus like we would normally in the West want our uh, biography to be. We just get these snapshots with some teaching thrown in. And in fact, the bulk of the Gospels, we enter into the very thing that we're entering into in Lent, which is the Passion. Look at the Gospel of John, look at Mark in the amount of their Gospel that just deals with the final weeks of Jesus' life. So what do we do with this? How in the world do we come up with a holistic view of Jesus when the Gospels themselves don't have a bullet point listing, this is who Jesus is? I'd like to start with the idea that in my own life, I realize I don't, I'm not a good judge of human character. I tend to stereotype based on a very small sample. If I meet somebody and they're upbeat, oh, glass half full. If I meet somebody who's a little bit on the downside, oh, glass half empty. Uh, happy person, sad person. This person's a good person. Oh, that's a bad person, watch out. It depends on our interaction with that individual and what snapshot we have gotten of that individual often in terms of how we judge their own personality. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that John 1.14, the final verse of the passage that was read here today, that this verse, if you put that up, is really the summary of the entire character of Jesus Christ, if we can grasp onto it. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. That was our Advent theme. We've seen his glory. This is John speaking now who lived with Jesus. He's seen the glory, the glory from the one and only son who came from the father. They understood this connection between God and God's son, Jesus. But here's the place where I want you to land today. The description of Jesus is he was full of grace and he was full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. And I believe every character quality that we may discover in the Gospels emanates from those two characteristics. Jesus was full of grace, and he was full of truth. There is no percentages. There's no flip uh, switch that he flipped from one to the other. There's a healthy and a fruitful tension between the truth that Jesus exhibited and the grace that he exhibited. Here's another way to state it. Jesus was generous in his compassion. That's one definition of grace. But he was also gracious in his convictions. He was generous in compassion. He was gracious in conviction, the truth side. Well, let's take a look at both of these. What does truth bring to our understanding of Jesus? Jesus was direct and to the point. He said there's a right way to live and there's a way that's going to be destructive if you live that way. He shared principles about God and, that, and about life that people needed to hear. And he continued to share them even when people mocked him and turned away from his teaching. 
Still, Jesus refused to compromise his message, even when he knew he would lose followers as a result. I've always said there was no marketing firm helping Jesus out. If he was out to please people, he wouldn't have said some of the things he said about truth where people, the, the gospel writers themselves say people turned away and walked away. This is too hard. There's no way. Jesus, you don't understand my situation. Whatever their thing was, they turned away from him, and he continued to preach. He continued to teach, even when he knew he was in a war of attrition in terms of followers. He was going to get down to a very small group. He continued to stay faithful to his principles when it angered the authorities. And finally, he declared the truth about himself at the very end, knowing that it would lead to his death. He was up in Galilee, and he said to his followers, we're going to Jerusalem. They said, don't go there. They're going to kill you. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, and he purposed to go to Jerusalem and face it. So in general, we could say that God's truth distinguishes what is the Bible calls light from darkness, sinful, harmful actions from righteous ones that will help us to flourish. And it gives the reality, or gives a picture of God's reality and purposes that this is how humans were created to live in relationship with their creator. So if that's truth, let's look at grace. What does grace help us understand about Jesus? First of all, grace, as we talk about Jesus, it's supernatural. This is not grace over a meal. This is not the grace we would give to someone else as humans. This is sovereign grace that can only come from a creator God. And it encompasses the very heart of the gospel. This is all about what Jesus came to accomplish on the cross. And we know that grace is nothing that we can earn. Any religion or system that's based on earning a reward from God is heretical. It's false. Jesus cut to the core of that, and he said, grace can be offered to you. It can be extended to you. It's a gift. All you have to do is take it. You can't earn it. But here's the tricky part. Jesus not only said that this grace was for anyone who would humbly come before him, admit sin and receive it, but he said once you do that, that's not a gift that you get to just hoard for yourself and say, I got mine, good luck to everybody else. Jesus commanded that all of us who follow him are required. This is a commandment. You must extend grace to the people in your life. So grace is this full, holistic view of Jesus. So there we have it. What are the challenges then to the truth side of what Jesus said? It can often seem very unyielding. It's like beating your head against a wall. You can't change the truth of the principles that God has put in the world. Nature tells us this. You can't fight gravity. You can't fight your need for food and water and air and sleep. Our bodies require that. And if we violate that, we pay the price. 
We reap what we sow. That is a principle that is in this world. We may not reap it in the short term and we get away with things violating the health of our own bodies, but eventually it'll catch up with us. Truth often produces pain when we collide with it and act like it's not there, especially when the truth exposes my own sin and my own brokenness. I'm not as good as I think I am, and the truth of God exposes that. Well, what are the challenges with grace, the grace side of Jesus? As I said, it's conferred from outside of us. It's given to us. We can't control it. We can only accept it. And yet this grace is restorative. It's relationship-oriented, first to restore us with God, and then it has the potential to restore relationships with those around us. But the challenge with grace is, again, we can be like a spoiled child. We can think it's only for us. The other danger is we can divorce it from God who is the source and we can say we as human beings have the power to be gracious to everyone. And we forget the creator who is the source of that and we seek to be gracious within ourselves. So please hear me. Jesus is both and. This is not an either or proposition regardless of how we feel about it or what snapshots of Jesus we want to take in. Jesus was as committed to truth as he was to grace. And throughout his ministry, we see him committed equally to a passion for telling the truth, but also lovingly demonstrating grace to people. He showed that both are essential to represent God the Father, and both are necessary to both save and bring change to the human life. Here's a phrase I want you to think about. Jesus accepted every human being where they were at. There were no preconditions for Jesus' encounters with people. He met them along the roadway, he met them in the desert, he met them in the city. He simply started a conversation like any of us would, accepting that person no judgment on their outward appearance or even what he knew about them. But here's the qualifier. He never left anyone in the Gospels in the same state in which he found them. He couldn't change them, but he could invite them to a new life, to a different life, because he understood what was in the human heart and wasn't just judging them based on their outward appearance. Through this series, uh, the pastoral staff is going to dig deeper into the encounter stories, but I just want to highlight three to give you an illustration of this. Remember what's called the rich young ruler? I call him the rich young materialist or capitalist. Greed was at the core of his life, even though to the people in that area, he looked like a fine business person. Jesus said, your God is capitalism, accumulation. And greed, the person walked away. Jesus accepted him where he was at, but he didn't leave him there. The woman at the well is a well-known story. Here is this outcast woman who is from a half-breed group called the Samaritans. She comes in the middle of the day, which was unheard of for a woman to approach a man in that culture. 
Jesus starts to talk to her. He doesn't say, away from me. He accepts her where she's at, and as the result of a fairly long conversation, Jesus gently says to this woman, your life is a train wreck in terms of your relationships. You've been married five times. You're living with a guy that doesn't even care about you. You need to turn and repent. He would not leave that woman where she was at. And finally, we can look at the disciples. We can look at the impulsiveness of Peter, the transformation that happened from this blue-collar fisherman to a writer in First and Second Peter, and you contrast the difference between those two pictures of this man. I'm going to point out Simon the Zealot next week. We don't know much about him. All we know is if you are called Simon the Zealot, the Zealots were a political party who believed that the overthrow of Rome was where they should put their energy. And Jesus had him as one of his 12 disciples, accepted him where he was at. But over the course of time, he started to teach Simon, politics is well and good, but it's not the ultimate answer. And so we will unpack a lot of these through this series in terms of specific encounters to try and make this point. But here's a summary from Reverend Tim Keller, and I love how he states it. Jesus comes to every individual and every culture. This is cross-cultural stuff, folks. He offers to fulfill their deepest desires and their best aspirations. Everything that we all want, Jesus wants to offer that. But in the same stroke, he also fundamentally challenges their beliefs and practices. He tells them they've been going about seeking the fulfillment of those desires in profoundly wrong ways. He offers them all they want meaning and satisfaction, freedom, identity, hope, and justice, but calls them to repent and seek their all in him. One of Jesus' parables, I would submit it's probably the most well-known, was his parable, what is typically called, of the prodigal son. And it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful uh, teaching But it isn't just about a prodigal son who takes his inheritance and squanders it and then finds himself out on the edge of town in homeless and in poverty and says, wait a minute, what have I done? Dad's still got a lot of money. I'm going home. And Dad welcomes him, of course, in this wonderful picture of how God receives us. But this parable also cuts two ways. And often I call it the parable of the elder brother because some of us are elder brothers. We stayed home. We didn't blow the money. We're loyal. We're committed, taking care of our parents. We did the right way. And my kid brother that's screwed up, he gets the same deal I do? That's where Jesus was going with this thing. We got two audiences that needed to hear that parable. It's interesting as a pastor and as a person that I find that the congregations that I have served, there's really only two camps. You're either a prodigal or you're an elder brother or sister. We tend to lean one or the other. We don't do a good job of being able to hang in the middle and see both. We tend to fall to one side or the the other. 
grace or truth. The elder brothers often don't know their elder brothers or sisters because it feels really good to obey. It feels really good to be loyal. It feels really good to be the one that stayed home and did it the right way. We love rules and we follow them and that gives us our feeling of identity. On the other hand, the rebels love being the rebel because most of their life they've fought against authority. They've got a different way to do it. And so they're kind of proud of the fact that they were a rebel. And they continue to live their lives that way. And so we also can look at our own, who do you like the best? Do you have compassion for the elder brother? Do you have compassion for the rebel? There's a lot of ways of unpacking that. My former church, we did a whole series on that parable to try and get down to the fact of where we tend to lean because it impacts us a lot. Those of us who are privileged to be parents with children, we know the challenge of trying to bring tough love. Our own culture has tried to bring those two terms together. And as parents, you have all been in situations where it's like, which one do I bring here? Do I need to bring law or do I need to bring grace? And sometimes two spouses don't agree on which one is required in a particular situation. That's a whole other story on parenting. But here's the test case. Different sermons that I've preached over the years, I have heard responses from my congregation that really defines these two camps. Doesn't matter what the topic is, sometimes I'll get a letter, it used to be letters, now it's emails, texts, and it'll say, Pastor, how come you are so soft on sin? How come you never talk about the holiness of God and that God is righteous and he will judge and we need more sin preached in this church? Now this is the same sermon, okay? These aren't two different sermons. Same sermon, I'll get another email or text that says, how come you're so angry all the time at people? How come you're so hard on people? People need to be cared for and caressed and loved and you need more grace in your life. I'm not kidding. This, this is what makes pastors schizophrenic. <laughs> we said the same thing. We prayed that the same Holy Spirit would work and I got two different versions of what people heard. Now, first of all, whenever I get a letter, this is true, I always prayerfully take it and say, Lord, is there any ounce of truth? I don't just round file that. I say, is there any truth in that? Because I want to be able to hear from God from my congregations. But then I ask the question, I wonder what this particular letter is saying about their filter right now and either where they've lived most of their life in either the prodigal or the elder brother or what they're going through right now that may be giving them this perspective. As human beings, we sure have a hard time remaining and holding those two things together. We tend to be the, I call it the peril of the pendulum. We swing one way, we swing the other. If you're raised in a legalistic home, you want grace. If you were in a grace that had, a home that had very little boundaries, sometimes you want somebody to tell you the truth about how to live and not just say, go have at it. The world's all yours to try. Let's close by going back to the verse again. John 1, 14. 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And this is what we can understand as humans, that Jesus was full of grace and He was full of truth. We live in a world where people want to paint Christians at the extremes. Either that church is going to hammer you because that's all they talk about is what you're doing wrong, or this church over here, they'll just love you. Come on in. We need to constantly pray for discernment, for wisdom, and boldness to live out a conviction to live a holistic gospel. This is what I'm committed to as a person, totally apart from what I get to do as a pastor. I'm committed to being that kind of an individual with all of the places where I encounter people, inside the church and outside of the church. Because I believe this with all my heart, that perfect unity of grace and truth is only found in Jesus. Now you can say, well that's easy for him, he's God. But here's the compelling thing for me. Because Jesus lives in me, he said, on a small measure, you're capable, Paul, of getting closer to that than you are right now. And I love that. Here's a picture of the best way I could figure it out was to show a, a coin. We don't look at a coin and say, there's only one side. It's either, there's only heads. There's only tails. A coin is a great representation of two things that cannot be separated. You can't split a coin and say it's one or the other. And when I think of the grace and I think of the truth of Jesus, I put my hand in my pocket and I feel a coin and I go, that, Lord, is what I want. I want it for myself in all my interactions. And I want to say that to us as the Evergreen family as we look to the future of this church, would that Jesus Christ would give all of us the ability to, as a whole, that people would see that Evergreen Covenant is filled with grace and filled with the truth of Jesus.